Well, good morning again. It's great to be here. Hard to believe it's our final visit this winter to Claremont. Uh, we always love coming here, and we're going to miss you folks, but truly have enjoyed our time of fellowship, and uh, we're happy to hear that the first of the weddings that we were aware of is going well, and there's more to come. And I had planned on speaking on the churches in Revelation here, but then I was asked if I would speak the first time on marriage because of what was going on, and uh, so we did that. And then, of course, Rick and Betty followed up with some excellent counseling. I got to see some of the format that they use. So obviously the Lord's will was done in those things, and we uh, thank him for that. But I'm going to ask you for your prayers as we uh, go through uh, Revelation 2 and 3. I only got through the first two churches, you know, the last time we were together. And uh, I've decided I'm going to get through, try to get through the five other ones today. Now, what that means, obviously, uh, I had to really rethink things because I had much more detail <laughs> on all of these, but we can't do it at all in detail. And we don't have to. You know, it's not important what I have down. It's important what the Spirit of God has for us. And if you recall, the primary purpose in looking at these particular churches is that the question I often hear is, you know, why is why is the church going in the direction it's going? You know, what can we do about changing the direction the church is going? Well, uh, my, th my thought is, and I think it's the correct thought, if you want to really know uh, what we should be doing as a church, let's see what the Lord has to say about it. And, of course, in Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord tells us those things that please him in his church, and he tells us those things that displease him in his church. So if the idea was, in looking at these uh, particular churches, was first of all a self-evaluation in your own personal life because that's you are the church, the body of Christ. It starts with you individually. So we trust the Spirit of God will speak to your heart. And if you are doing those things that are pleasing the Lord, keep doing them. If the Spirit of God convicts you and says, you know, you really should be doing something different here, you're not doing what pleases me, well then you repent, which you find in almost all these churches that are being asked to do, and start doing what the Lord would have you do. And then, of course, that will carry over to the local body. So we trust that this assembly will take a look at their functioning here to see if they're doing the things that pleases the Lord. And if they are, continue to do them. And if there are things that are going on that are displeasing to the Lord, well, then repent of those things as a body and move forward doing those things that please the Lord. It's interesting as we <clears throat> start with uh, the third church, which is going to be Pergamos today. So open your Bibles to chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And again, what I'm asking for is that the Lord will just give me wisdom and guidance and direction so we can hopefully get through the five. And of course, if we don't, it isn't the end of the world. Uh, you're very capable of following these things. But we're going to try to at least cover the, the basic things that... Uh, the Lord is trying to tell us in each of these particular churches. And I couldn't help but think, you know, and when we look at Pergamos, uh, the word Pergamos really means a thorough marriage. And how ironic we spent uh, the first time speaking about marriage. Uh, there's been counseling sessions going on about marriage. We've had one of those take place uh, yesterday. And, of course, a thorough marriage is exactly what we're supposed to have. <laughs> All right? But the thorough marriage that we have here in Pergamos was not a good marriage, as you were going to see. 
But nevertheless, a thorough marriage was beginning to take place in this particular church. So let's read, uh, starting with verse 12 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things say, He who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you have hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have those there who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balaam to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. But you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no man knows except him who receives it. God will bless the reading of his word. Now, as I mentioned, here we have in Pergamos what was known as a thorough marriage. And, you know, during this period of church history, a great change was beginning to take place. And, of course, the church began drifting into worldliness when the church in the state or the world was, of course, being united under Constantine. Now, it was taking place in this little church at the time it was written, but it also shows the trend over the, the church period and we've mentioned before how it can show that, and it does, but it's always in a downward pattern. And here we're seeing some things. Remember, you go back to Ephesus, it was simply this. They were doing a lot of great things, but their love for the Lord diminished. And that was terrible, because if the Lord isn't involved in things, he can't bless. And then, of course, in Smyrna, the only church that was not rebuked, they were faithful to the Lord, to the very end, even unto death, if it was necessary. But here we have something taking place which is very distasteful to the Lord. There's a little slogan that goes this way. Maybe you've heard it. Uh, maybe you haven't. But just listen to it because it really kind of summarizes um, what was taking place here. The slogan goes this way. The church in the world started flirting. Then they began to date. They fell in love and then married. We are now living with this terrible union. End of quote. Now, see, all of that is good when it comes to a thorough marriage centered around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, a godly marriage. But you see, this was a very ungodly marriage. And unfortunately, the, the church here is allowing the world to do what? Creep in. Big time. And you know, the Lord addresses himself in verse 12, and I think rightfully so. He says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, the word of God we know from Hebrews, expresses himself. We know the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword which pierces right into the very marrow of the bone. And we've all experienced that because you see what the, the sword here 
in Christ's word is referring to is that stern, judging character of God's word. I experienced that in my salvation. When the Spirit of God convicted me of sin, righteousness, and judgment, oh, that sword penetrated to the very marrow of my very being. And that's when I responded and accepted the Lord. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I've experienced the word of God and his judging character. And when does that happen? It's when you allow sin in your life. The spirit of God will bring to mind what you have stored in your life, in your word, from God's word. But you know, I found myself, and I know many people do, when you have sin in your life, you don't want to spend time in God's word. Why? Because it will convict you. You see, that judgmental aspect of the sword of God's word will penetrate. And that's why so many people who fall into sin remain there for a while because they just will not spend time with the Lord. You're not comfortable in his presence, and you're not comfortable in his word. But you've got to get to the word. And when you do, it will pierce your heart, which is good. You see, it hurt. When they, the night I accepted the Lord until I accepted the Lord. And boy, after that, the pain was gone. It spoke the truth. And now he's in my life. And the same thing is true if I'm living in sin. When I'm convicted of that and I repent of that sin, oh, that fellowship again is sweet with the Lord. But you see, this is how he addresses them. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word, judges everything and everyone by his word. And he does so because his word is truth. It's unchangeable, and it endures forever. Now, in verse 13, we see their condition. And remember, we mentioned up front in the original language, he knows with absolute clarity your works. It's just that he just doesn't know them. He knows and sees them with absolute clarity what was taking place in the church in Pergamos. And, of course, they were settling down and dwelling where? Where Satan dwells. Where Satan's throne is. And, of course, that's the world. I just want to mention, it does not say Satan's seat. Satan doesn't have a seat you know, we read in Scripture, the Lord says it, and it's taught in the epistles. This world is Satan's throne. It's his domain. Hell is not his seat, as the world and others like to think. Well, someday he'll find it himself there. But he doesn't sit in hell and rule from hell. He roams this world. He's the prince and the power of this age, this world. And this church has settled down and began to dwell where Satan's throne is. Can you see what a sad marriage this is becoming? Nothing good can come out of this marriage. The church and the world cannot get along together. It just is not possible. See, either you're going to follow the Lord or you're going to follow the world. Neutral you cannot be. Or as we say, you can't straddle the fence. Very uncomfortable when you straddle a fence. 
You're going to be loyal to one or the other. And of course, it's interesting, Satan is the one that is behind all of this. The world, the flesh, and the devil is what is associated with the world. And you know, there are many warnings in scripture. I just wanted to bring a few to your mind concerning the world, because we only have time for a few, but a few should be enough. And this is what God's word says about the world. And he's speaking to his children. In James 1.27, keep yourselves unspotted from the world. When you talk about spots, what does that imply? Dirt. You know, quite often after we eat, we have spots on our shirts. All right? It gets dirt's gotten on there. And you know, if you start mingling with the world, you're going to get dirty. You just are. I think it was uh, McCain, and when, I, when he was running for president, they asked him about all these nasty slogans. And, he, and they said, well, how do you like all this you know, backbiting all the time? And I, rem- I never forgot his little phrase. He said, you know, if you wrestle with the pigs in the mud, you're going to get dirty, but the pigs will love it. And you know how true that is. You see, if you start to wrestle and flirt and get married to the world, you're going to get dirty. And guess who's going to love it? The world's going to love it. You're not going to. You're going to be miserable. But you see, the world will be very happy. Because in order for you to get dirty in this world, you have to begin to conform to this world. You have to begin compromise to the ways of the world. You, I remember when I was a little boy, I used to say to my mother, my grandmother, as I was found you know, running around with somebody I shouldn't be, well, how, how in the world am I ever going to reach him for Christ if I don't go around with him? Well, that, that would be good if that's exactly what I was doing. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, during that time with those people, how many times did I witness Oh, very few, because you see, the moment you would witness, what would happen? They didn't want to be around me anymore. See, that's the problem when you start getting involved in the world. You're going to have the problem. James 4 4 says, friendship with the world makes one an enemy of God. Do you remember what you were under condemnation? You read about reconciliation in Scripture, you know, we know that in the book of Romans, you know, it starts out condemnation, and then we have justification, and then we have sanctification and glorification. But, you know, when you start reading about condemnation, what does it tell you what you were before you were justified by faith and grace in Christ? Many things, and one of them is you were an enemy. You were at enmity with God. You were his enemy, well, James is telling a believer here, friendship with the world makes you an enemy with God again. Why? Because you're patronizing with those who literally hate the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's another thing we find out in Scripture. The world's attitude in John 15 is made very clear. The attitude towards Christ and his blood-brought children is one of hatred. Do you know how much the world hates you? As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord says, you know, don't be surprised if they hate you. 
They hated me first. They're going to hate you as well. And yet why is it that we want to kind of have the world accept this? It really should boggle our minds when you think about it. The world hates those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not comfortable around us. They really want nothing to do with us. But they'll do everything they can to get us to become like them. That's why we're told not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed to God's good, acceptable, and perfect will. And there's just one other verse. It says, do not love the world, 1 John 2.15. You say, well, Bob, I don't really love the world. Well, then, why is it so often we as believers try to get the world to accept us just a little bit? You know, it's nice to be accepted just a little bit. Well, the world will accept you a little bit. But, of course, what are you going to have to do for them to do that? You're going to have to compromise. They're not going to compromise. You have to compromise. You see, what a terrible marriage has taken place in the church today. It's amazing how the world has moved into the church today. In my lifetime, I've seen so much of it. And it's sad. But you see, in every church, there's always that faithful remnant. And that's the group we're talking to here. The whole idea of this is we want you individually to be one of the overcomers, one of the faithful remnant. Because in all of these churches, the Lord had a faithful remnant. That's what we want you to be. And yes, as a body of Christ, remain faithful to the Lord. Don't allow the world to come in. The world has nothing to offer us. Nothing. We've been saved from the filth of this world. Let's have nothing to do with it. Now, as we go on in here, there's a couple of other things. He does commend them for maintaining a loyal testimony by holding fast several things. This is in verse 13. They held fast Christ's name. That refers to his deity. His atoning death. They held fast to his resurrection. They held fast to his ascension. And they were holding fast to his coming again. Now, I want you to think about this. How much does the world hang on to Jesus Christ being deity? <laughs> they, they won't admit to that for one second. What about his atoning death? Oh, they, they will agree with, to the death. They know he died. But his atoning death? His sacrificial substitutionary death for them? They have no part with that. What about his resurrection? Well, you just watch and observe this coming Easter season. Very little will be mentioned, if anything, in the world about the resurrection 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. As far as the world is concerned, he's still in the grave. What about his ascension back into heaven? Well, they don't believe that because they don't believe he came from heaven. So how could he send back to a place he had never been? And what about his second coming? It was amazing, even amongst the church today, we talk a lot about it, but how much has that changed our lives? You really believe the Lord could come at any time? And I know what you're going to say. Well, of course I do. Well, if it were today, would you change your plans for this afternoon? I don't know. Would you? <laughs> you see, do we live in the reality of it? The world doesn't even think about that. It's nothing, you see... It's so important for us to understand. We should have nothing to do with the world. And yet, unfortunately, the world is creeping in. A couple of other things he was concerned about. Two false doctrines were raised in their head. The one is called the doctrine of Balaam. And, of course, you have to go to Numbers chapter 22 through 25 to read that. And we don't have time to do that. But you should go back and read that, the whole story. But basically, in a nutshell, and that's kind of what we have to do today, talk about things in a little nutshell to get the truth across. You know, Balak wanted Balaam to curse the people of God. He says, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> that won't work. The Lord loves his people. He'll stay with his people. He says, but if you want to destroy them, I'll tell you what you can do instead. You can't curse them, but you can corrupt them. And if you corrupt them, how will, that bring how will that bring victory to you? Because God will judge his people when they're living in sin. Because the Lord chastens those he loves. You see, that's the doctrine. So what was happening? Immorality and idolatry were being brought into the church. And we know full well. How much immorality and idolatry is in the church today? You see, it attacks the very standards of separation and sanctification that are set by God. I'm sure you're familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Come ye apart and be ye separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Pretty clear in Scripture. Separation from the world. And, of course, we also read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart to God from sin. This doctrine coming in was attacking separation and sanctification that was set by God. And then there's another doctrine. Now, it doesn't spell it out here or define it, but it's the principle of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And it pretty much supported the doctrine of Balaam. But in addition, it introduced an idea of more uh, what we call restricted in, uh, leadership in the form of clergy and priests into the church as distinguished from laity. And, of course, there's no, nothing in, in Scripture that speaks of clergy and laity. You can search till you're blue in the face. You will not find it. And yet this is where it was beginning to show dominance. And as we know, it has become very dominant in the church today. In verses 16 and 17, the Lord's sharp rebuke 
and then his promise to overcome it. He says simply, it's easy to pick out, repent. Repent. Repent from what? Your idolatry, your immorality, your infidelity, your unfaithfulness, your love for the world, the flesh, the devil. Repent from those things. And I want to draw your attention to the pronouns in verse 16. He says, I will come unto thee. That's the church. And I will fight against them. That's the false doctrine and teachers and those who follow them. And if they would not repent, he promised that this judgment would come upon them soon or suddenly. And then finally, I just want to mention, because we have to move on, three things are promised to the overcomers. First of all, hidden manna. Now, this is an interesting phrase, but I would suggest that manna really is a type of Christ here. You know, we're familiar with manna. We know that when the children of Israel were in the, in the wilderness, the Lord fed them manna. And, of course, that was to give them physical strength and substance so they could keep on living and moving on. But, of course, the hidden manna here speaks of Christ. And, of course, it's symbolic of feasting in sweet fellowship with Christ and thus being strengthened with spiritual food. The Lord says, if you avoid the world, you can have some of this hidden manna. You can feast on me. And I will give you spiritual food that will give you spiritual strength to move forward in a manner that will be pleasing unto me. In other words, we are to dwell in his word and let his word dwell in us. And if we do that, oh, how that will strengthen us spiritually. Then he talks about a white stone. He'll give you a white stone. Well, I would suggest this symbolically speaks of Christ's changeless purity. White in scripture often speaks of purity. You see, the idea here is through him we can have victory over every defiling thing. But only through him. You know, Peter tells us that in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He has imparted to us his divine nature. Given us everything we need for spiritual life and godly living. He has given us his great and precious promises that enable us to do what? Escape the corruption that is in this world through lust. There's absolutely no excuse for you to get involved in this world. I don't care how weak you or I might be. We have the spirit of God within us. His divine nature is within us. And that victory can be ours over the world through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's the message we have before us here. And then the final thing is a new name on a white stone. <laughs> well, I'm not going to disappoint you. I, I really can't tell you uh, what that new name on that white stone is going to be. I know it's a new name, so it can't be Bob Fouts. And it can't be your name either. I appreciated Dean Elford's comment on this white stone. He refers to it as the new name indicates acceptance by God and a title to glory. 
acceptance by God and a title to glory. See, there's nothing in Bob Fouts that is acceptable to God or entitles him to glory. It's only this new name. <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be. Maybe it won't even be a name as we think of a name. But I think the idea presented here is something that we can hang on to. Acceptance by God and a title to glory. See, this is for those who overcome the world. Oh, may we understand what the lesson from Pergamos is. Don't get involved with this world. Feast on the Lord, and he will bless you for it. Okay, let's go to the next one, which is Tyre. And this is uh, an interesting one. We could spend all kinds of time on all of these, but we don't have that. So let's just read uh, the church at Tyre, Tyre, and starting in verse 18 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Tyre, Tyre, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, and as, you, and as for your works, the last are more than the first. In other words, the works were ever increasing. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow this woman or wife, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come, and he will overcome and keeps my word until the end of him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule or shepherd them as a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, God will bless the reading of his word. Now, Tyra means perpetual sacrifice or continual offering. Perpetual sacrifice, continual offering. And I think just from those two phrases, you already know where this church was headed and where we are at today. See, it's during this time that Roman Catholicism was dominant in Christendom. And the false doctrine of perpetual sacrifice or continual offering was the fundamental error being taught and practiced. The doctrine denies the finished work of Christ on the cross as the only and sufficient sacrifice offering for the sin of mankind. You see, Romanism, we have to understand, and we're very much aware of Romanism. I mean, if you watch any program on TV that has any type of religion in it at all, it is always what? It is always Romanism. All right? Because it has all these outward, exterior, religious types of things that people love. 
People love religion. Religion has nothing to offer you. <laughs> you see, Christ is the only hope of your soul. But you see, Romanism is not biblical Christianity. In fact, it's not really Christianity at all. It has a portion of Christianity. It has a portion of Judaism. It has a large portion of paganism. It's a religion unto itself. And this is what was taking place in masses here. It was already beginning in this little church back when it was written. And you know, the Lord refers to himself here, it's interesting, as the son of God. Notice that. He's the son of God, deity. Why does he refer to himself as the son of God to this church? Well, because see, this false doctrine in Thyatira was causing people to think of him as the son of Mary rather than the son of God. And now we even hear the phrase, Mary, the mother of God. I mean, that's sacrilege. God doesn't have a mother. God is infinite. But you see, this is what was happening. And of course, it's ever increasing in our day and age. And that's why we read here how he presents himself. The flaming eyes, burnished bronze, feet speaking loudly of righteous anger and coming judgment on this blasphemous sin. Somebody put it this way. Here we have Christ in the most searching and terrible aspect of any he assumes towards the churches. And then here, their condition, he simply emphasizes in verse 19, and I, I emphasize it as we read it, works is increasing and increasing and increasing. You see, Christ isn't enough, so they say. In addition to Christ, you need to work and work and work. But you see, it's Christ or nothing. Now, as you look at the con condemnation and rebuke, in verses 20 through 23, the Lord says four things about this false teaching and conduct. The first thing he says in the first part of verse 20 is the source of their heresy. They were wrong in their tolerant attitudes. They had begun to tolerate false teaching and conduct. Now, we're all familiar with this word tolerance, aren't we? But you see, we, we have that in a worldly sense. Uh, we're to be tolerant of everything and everyone. Of course, unless you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there isn't much tolerance towards those in this world. But we must tolerate everything else. But we're not talking about the world here. We're talking about the church. The church here was beginning to tolerate. They had a tolerant attitude about what was taking place in this false teaching and the conduct of the world. You know, I just want to say bluntly, and I don't, if you disagree with me, that's okay. I don't feel I have to be tolerant about anything that's contrary 
to God and his word. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry. I'm not saying I never have to be tolerant about some things. A lot of things irritate me. <laughs> you know, just ask my wife. But, you know, you learn to tolerate some of these things. That, you have to do that. To be functional. But when it comes to spiritual things, you tolerate nothing but what God's word says. You see, we know that and we shake our head. But, you know, the church today is tolerating so many things. So many things that they know are wrong. They do it under the guise. Well, you know, we have to try to get these people to come in. So you have to be a little tolerant or they won't come. But what's the problem when they come? They don't change. They get you to change. Or well, maybe not to the nth degree that they're at, but your attitudes. And it's amazing today as you look at Christendom as a whole, what they are willing to tolerate, which is unscriptural. Real message for us here. We're not just here preaching against Roman Catholicism. But this is, they are kind of the epitome of all these things. And it's evident. But it's true of all the church. And they're not even the church. They're a religion unto themselves. The second thing, the seriousness of the heresy. They were wrong in doctrine and practice. You know, doctrine's fine, but make sure it's God's word, <laughs> true doctrine. You know, doctrine is nothing more than teaching. Any teaching that you are confronted with, you be like the church at Berea. You go home and you check the scriptures. And if it isn't amen in relationship to the scriptures, throw it out. Don't tolerate it in any way or form. But the church today, it's amazing how the doctrines have changed and the practices have changed. And as a result, we are committing spiritual fortification and idolatry. And then in verse 21, they refuse to repent when given the opportunity. There's that word again. You know, repentance is not something we like to do. Whether you're an unbeliever or a believer, you just don't like to repent. We like to do anything but that. And yet, you know, the Lord made it very clear. Unless you repent, you likewise will perish. And of course, that's true of the unbeliever, but it's also true of a church. If you don't repent, from following false doctrine and false teaching and allowing the world to come in. Guess what's going to happen to this church? It will perish. It will no longer be recognized as church as far as God is concerned. But you know, he does have some faithful 
and wonderful words of encouragement to the most godly remnant. You know, even in this church, to the extent it had fallen, there was still that faithful remnant. And you know, that's how I like to look at you folks. Now, I, I think as an overall meeting, yeah, you're being faithful to the Lord, you're a faithful remnant, but I don't know you personally as much as I'd like to. And you don't know me as much as you think you might like to, but maybe once you found out more about me, you might have an entirely different attitude about me. You see, we don't know what's going on in the lives of people, but you know, we do know that the Lord always has his faithful remnant. Always. And that's what we're challenging you to be, personally and as a body of Christ. And of course, in verses 24 and 25, his loving counsel was one of simple instruction. And really, this is all we can hold on to here in this church. He says, hold fast until I come. If you have to hold fast, he says, in essence, he's saying, hold on to what you have in Christ until I come. Don't get so absorbed with what's going on in this world. It's wicked. It's terrible. Stay away from it. Don't get into spiritual immorality and idolatry. Don't follow false teaching. You're being bombarded with it. There's new religions and new thoughts and uh, ideas presented every day, analyzing God's word. There's a, a TV show on uh, one of the educational channels, uh, a critical look at Jesus. What do you mean a critical look at Jesus? That's not coming from those who know and love the Lord. <laughs> what critical thing could you think about? You know, this morning we gathered and did what? We rejoiced in everything about him. Not the world. They're looking for anything they can do to diminish the person and the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He just says, during this tough time, and it is tough, it disgusts me. It really does. Boy, I can't hit that button quick enough when I see stuff like that on TV. You hate to see what's going on in the name of religion today. What is he telling us to do here? Hold on to what you have in Christ until when I come. You see, Newell's comment goes like this. Christ's sure and imminent personal coming again is the tonic for faithfulness. And, of course, we also know in Scripture it says, those who focus on the Lord's return, it purifies your life. Again, if you're living in view of the Lord's return, you understand something. Your hope is in the Lord. I'm not looking for this world to get better. It's not going to get better. And I don't need religion. I need Christ. And that's all I need. And that's why the Lord says, hold on, hold fast to what you have in me until I come. Well, we like to think that would be today. But it may not be today. It still may be a good time off. 
there's no question in my mind we're getting near that day, but we don't know when it is. But you know, it really doesn't matter when it is. I have been told here, this is what pleases the Lord. Are you getting it? For you personally and as a body of Christ, hold on fast to what you have in Christ until he comes. You don't have to get caught up in all this nastiness that was taking place in the church at Tyre Tyre and is definitely taking place in the world and in Christendom today. Well, our time is done. We got through two. That means I got to get through three tonight. We'll see what happens. But, you know, up to this point now, we've learned five things anyway. And we'll close with this. First of all, we are to love the Lord. That came from the church in Ephesus. Don't lose your love for the Lord. <laughs> love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. We learn from the church of Smyrna, you are to be faithful to the Lord until the end. Whenever or however that may come for you. We have learned that we are not to be conformed to this world. And we have learned that we are to hold fast to Christ until he comes. You see, that's what pleases the Lord. Now, as we look at the other three tonight, hopefully we'll see a few more things that will encourage our hearts to remain faithful to the one who is ever faithful to us. Shall we pray? <clears throat> our gracious God and dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you again for your word. We just thank you for this passage in Revelation chapter 2. We realize that the messenger is very feeble, but the Spirit of God is very powerful. And we just pray, Lord, that these simple truths that have been sought to be brought forth may be grabbed a hold of by those who are gathered here today, that the Spirit of God may speak to them through the Word of God. We just pray that we will remain faithful to you, that we will be a part of that faithful remnant when you bring us to be with yourself one way or the other. Help us, Lord, not to love the world in any way or form. And may we hold fast to what we have in Christ until that day you take us to be with yourself. Just help us to apply these truths in our hearts and lives day by day. We ask now that you will part us with your blessing. Bless our time of fellowship together as we gather around the table for a meal. We just thank you for the food that has been provided, for the hands that have prepared it. Just pray that you will use it in our lives to your name's honor and glory. We pray that our fellowship may be sweet and honoring and glorifying to thyself. We ask these things and give you the praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen.